Recovery Elevator, episode 42. The first time in my life I put my own ego aside and realized that I don't have the answers to what I need to do. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one year, two months, three weeks, and four days, which is incredible. On today's podcast, I've got Farrell. One quick way to describe Farrell is he's a badass. He's 28 years old, he's been sober a little over five years, and he's decided to take his recovery in his own hands, and he started the organization slash movement slash community Party Sober Clothing. Now, there are some damn good-looking tank tops on his website. However, it's negative four degrees in Montana, so I'm going to wait till around May, April, or June, well, in Montana, maybe July, to send in my order for this good-looking tank top. We're taking some pics on the recoveryelevator.com website. I've got breaking news, Recovery Elevator, and more details to come at the end of this podcast episode. There will be our first Recovery Elevator Recovery Network Group meetup in Seattle, Washington on Saturday, February 27th. More details to come at the end of this podcast episode, but I am excited to put some faces to some names. I just got back from Thanksgiving down in Colorado with my family, and it was a sober, fantastic time. One good thing about driving 12 hours each way to Colorado is I get to recover. What I mean by that is I had to physically sit in a chair and look forward for 12 hours each way. And I got disciplined with this. I got outside of my comfort zone. For example, for one hour, I turned the radio off and I put my cell phone in the back seat. And I just sat there and I drove with no music, nothing for one full hour. And what I had to do I had to feel a lot of feelings. Some were great, some were uncomfortable, but it didn't matter. I just had to feel these feelings. And right around about four hours into Wyoming, which seemed like only about a fourth the way through that state. Now, I've heard that Wyoming is the least populated state in the United States of America with around 500,000 people in population. I think they overshot that mark by right around 500,000 people. I drove through that state and might have seen 70 people, including the hotel I stayed at. There were cars parked, but I didn't see a single person. I checked in late and I left early, but it was really weird. Kind of eerie. However, beautiful state. And if the idea of your closest neighbor being 74 miles away is appealing to you, great place. Another favorite resource of mine in recovery that I fully utilized on my drive down to Colorado are podcasts. Sure, you're listening to Recovery Elevator right now. I've got my own podcast. But there are some other really good podcasts out there. I've had Omar, or O, from the Share Podcast on my podcast. I heard a couple of his episodes. I've had Shane from that Sober Guy podcast. I heard a couple of his episodes down there. I also was recommended a podcast called the Bubble Hour Podcast. This podcast is great. It's a panel of about three to four women who all call in remotely and just talk about recovery. It's relaxed. Sometimes you hear a baby crying in the background. I loved it. It was really good. One of the episodes, they talked about upcoming ways to stay sober during Thanksgiving and the holidays. I heard some really good tips that I definitely implemented only seven hours later when I arrived at my destination in Denver, Colorado for Thanksgiving dinner. In one of their podcast episodes, they talk about ways to let people know that you're not going to be drinking for their Thanksgiving dinner or their New Year's party or their Christmas party. And all the answers were good, but I'm going to be honest with you, they weren't great. Many of the answers included, well, you know, I'm on this Atkins diet. I've got a marathon coming up in a couple months. 
I've got to drive everybody tonight. Maybe I missed it due to the beautiful Wyoming scenery, but I didn't hear anybody straight up say the, uh, ah, I forget the word, starts with a T, ends with R-U-T-H, ah, truth, that's the word. Ah, it's hard to say at times. And I'm guilty as charged. I've got a podcast episode maybe in the teens or the 20s where I list off 10 ways to let people know you're not going to be drinking at their party. But I do recall at the end of that list, what I have learned from firsthand experience is to simply tell them the truth. It doesn't have to be a full divulgence of your story, but just say, oh, I don't drink anymore. Or it could be, I'm trying to give up drinking. You'll find the responses interesting. And what I mean by that is the lack of response. The majority of people, four out of five, are going to say, hey, that's great. Hey, did you sell your Camry? They're going to change the subject really quickly because you will find the subject of the conversation doesn't stay on the fact that you're not drinking. But there are times when it does stay on that fact. And what I have learned through personal experience, the ones who poke and prod, A, they're asking for themselves because deep down, they might consider they have a drinking problem. And B, they're asking for a relative, a brother, a spouse, someone they're very close to. And here's the empowering part to Recovery Elevator. This is where you have the chance to change a life, even though it might seem like changing your own life is so impossible at that very moment. But simply by saying, oh, I quit drinking, that right there might give the other person the strength and the courage to say, wait a second, if Tammy's quitting drinking, then I can quit drinking. I mean, Tammy, if Tammy is quitting drinking, I can quit drinking or at least give it a go. I also fully understand that divulging a secret like that is extremely difficult. And I know from firsthand experience. And I'm not recommending for everybody to walk into Thanksgiving dinner and hold up your hand, clink the glass and say, hey guys, I'm not drinking tonight because I'm probably an alcoholic. You know, I'm still working on it. I did one of those questionnaires. I got 24 out of 25 correct, which means I'm an alcoholic. You know, so correct's the bad thing. Uh, so please just uh, hand me some soda water, Diet Coke, Uncle Rick. I'm not going to be boozing with you tonight till 4 a.m. I don't recommend doing that, but you get the point. Because what happens next year if you're on the same Atkins diet in the following year, or you're on nine Atkins diets in a year? You might just get a new nickname. Oh, what's up, Atkins? Now I'm going to introduce a pillar or a core foundation of what Recovery Elevator is all about. And that is the compound effect. This is an audio book and a book. Well, I listened to it on a long road trip by Darren Hardy. It's all about how small decisions and actions you take today pay off in high dividends later down the road. But again, that's that blind leap of faith, which is very hard to take. Now, here's an example of where my actions in the past paid high dividends within the first five minutes of me walking into the Thanksgiving feast in Denver, Colorado. I walk in the door and I see this guy, Paul, who I've been having Thanksgiving dinner with, Christmas dinner with for about 20 years. The very first thing he says to me without even looking at me because he's stirring this pot of meatballs that, oh my God, smell delicious. He's looking down, stirring his meatballs. He goes, hey, Paul, don't eat the meatballs. There's whiskey in it. And I go, thanks, Paul. Yeah. And he could hear it in my voice. My response was a little strange. And he looks at me. He's like, dude, you're all over the internet. You don't drink, right? And I was like, yeah, Paul, that's, that's awesome, man. Thank, thanks for letting me know. Now, right there, I'm not saying I would have relapsed on meatballs, but there's about a 99.9% .9 chance I would have dove head first into those meatballs with a handful of toothpicks and full of tenacity. 
Later on in the evening, my brother also confirmed. He's like, dude, that's a whiskey with a couple meatballs mixed in it. So who knows? I could have relapsed over meatballs, but I probably would have tried it. But right there, major roadblock averted. Had I been on that Atkins diet for the last seven years, that guy Paul probably would assume the eighth year is the magic year that I'm off the Atkins diet, and I could probably try the meatballs. Straight up telling people that you're not drinking because A, you're an alcoholic, or B, you're questioning it, is a huge milestone and a large step to take. And that's a decision everybody needs to make on their own. But I want everybody to give it some thought. Next time someone says, hey, do you want to drink? Do you say, no, I've got an early morning tomorrow? Or you just say, you know what? I don't drink. Hell, if you really want to hammer the fact in, start a podcast. I'll help you out with it. After hearing like four or five different podcasts, I wish there were more. I'm serious on this. Another really cool thing happened to me over Thanksgiving break. The Monday and Tuesday after Thanksgiving, I spoke at two schools in Colorado. This is something that I'm becoming extremely passionate about. At first, it was terrifying. Not only the public speaking part, that's terrifying in general. But number two, going into a classroom where people haven't actively searched to find Recovery Elevator and put my story out on my sleeve, it's hard to do. But it's real rewarding. Unfortunately, in these schools, it's not a hard sell. Well, a hard sell to get their attention is what I mean. Because this is one degree of separation. We all know somebody, we live with somebody, or we're the alcoholic ourselves. This is a one degree of separation, and it's a family disease. So every single one of those kids, whether they know it or not, they have already been affected by this disease called alcoholism. And statistics say... Out of the 40 kids that I spoke to, there's probably one or two kids already struggling with alcohol in there. When I first started the talk, out of the 40 kids, about 20 of them were on Pluto. What I mean by that is they were respectful. They weren't talking, but they wanted nothing to do with me. In fact, at the beginning of the talk, I started to talk about stigmas and stereotypes. And there was a kid wearing a Cincinnati Bengals hat in the front row. And I said, yeah, a stereotype would be to say that everybody wearing a Cincinnati Bengals hat like this gentleman here, has poor taste in NFL football teams. The kid was looking at me, but what I didn't know is he had his iPod in and didn't hear a word I was saying. He quickly realized the whole class was looking at him, including me, pulled an earbud out and was like, hey, uh, sorry, what was that? And I looked at him, I was like, don't worry about it, my man. But here is the interesting thing. I've spoken to several schools now, and this has happened at every single one. At the end of the talk, Mr. Cincinnati Bengal, he was asking questions. Earbuds were out, and this kid was engaged. Reason why? He's already been affected by this disease called alcoholism. I don't recall having somebody come to my school and talk to me about that. I do recall having many public speakers come to my school and talk to me about how to achieve these lofty goals and dreams. Those were cool as well. But I wish we had somebody come to my school when I was in high school and talk about an issue, a topic, a subject matter that kids in high school face every single day. And I'm arming them with knowledge that if used, again, knowledge is not power unless it's used, but if this knowledge is used, if they become alcoholic later down the road, they've got some ideas on what they can do. Another huge point of these talks is to eradicate the stigma surrounding drugs and alcohol so that they know that their father, their mother, their uncle, or whoever they know in their life that is struggling with disease and addiction or is an alcoholic, they are not weak people. This is not a moral failing. It's a disease. So I made it home safe back to Montana where it's colder than I ever thought it could be. And I'm still sober. 
This was my second sober consecutive Thanksgiving, and I can't wait for the third. I'm not thinking about it. I'm still taking this one day at a time, but I'm looking forward to another sober Thanksgiving, another sober Christmas, because holidays sober are remarkable. Recovery Elevator episode 43, the next podcast episode, will be a more comprehensive list of ideas of how to stay sober through the holidays. Enough jabbing out of me. Let's hear from our interviewee, Farrell. Farrell, how are you? I'm awesome, man. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for joining us. Farrell is 28 years old. He's been sober for five years. In fact, he just hit five years of sobriety on September 14th. Farrell, let's uh, give listeners a little bit of background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living. Are you married? What do you do for fun, Farrell? Right on. So, begin sobriety day is September 14th, 2010. And a little bit about me is, well, currently, uh, what I do for work is, honestly, full-time party sober clothing, which is so fun to be able to work full-time for a company that I started. I never really thought that it would become to that, but... Um, that's kind of what my recovery has allowed me to do, which is really whatever the hell I want, which is a beautiful thing. Other than that, I also am really into music. Growing up, music was my passion, and I also have a nonprofit organization that is also a band, and what we do is we bring a full production rock show into middle schools and high schools designed as a, a motivational program. So between those two things, I stay really busy. A little background on me, I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah. Growing up here was kind of interesting. I mean, it's definitely a city, but it's still small enough to have kind of a, a little bit of a small town vibe where, I don't know, a lot of people know a lot of people. It's almost like you're never really more than two or three connections away from somebody else. You know, somebody that knows somebody that knows that same person, if that makes sense. Growing up for me was interesting. I was always into music, like I said, also really into skateboarding and kind of the punk rock scene, but also absolutely loved baseball. So I grew up doing all of those things. And with that, I grew up in different circles of friends that didn't always get along with each other. So it was kind of like this chameleon effect that I, I taught myself you know, to fit in where I was with the people I was with. And doing that all the time, and my, my first, these aren't my words, but my first um, drug of choice was approval. <laughs> and that really started to hinder me as I continued to, to get a little bit older. So, you know, after... After baseball practice, hanging out with the athletes, I'd go straight to band practice, hanging out with the musicians. And within that, within my high school, I mean, everybody, I mean, not everybody drank, obviously, but that's the way that I saw it. Whoever I was hanging out with, there were always drugs and alcohol available. So I, I subscribed to 12-step recovery. That's what absolutely works for me. And there's a portion in Bill's story in the first chapter where Bill mentions that golf permitted drink. And that was when, in his story, when he started playing golf a lot because you could drink on the golf course. And for me, what that looked like was music and playing shows and being in a band oh, yeah. permitted drugs and alcohol. So I, I remember when I was in treatment, I highlighted that spot. And I was just like, and I wrote off to the side with music. And so that's, that's what it was for me. Again, growing up and kind of just having different masks to wear all the time got so exhausting. And... I was struggling with some things like depression and anxiety. And even though I did fit in in just about any crowd I tried to, it came with a lot of effort and it was really, really tiring. Mm -hmm. This is funny. I always tell this when I'm telling my story. My first experience with a substance was when I was 14 or maybe 15 years old. My junior high school girlfriend broke up with me and I just had this little teenage angsty broken heart. And I had remembered 
from previously when I had been sick, I would take NyQuil and it would put me to sleep. And at 15 years old, I just wanted to check out. And what was available to me was NyQuil in the medicine cabinet. So I pounded half a bottle and went to sleep and it worked. And it was just like, okay, well, worst case scenario, if life gets too uncomfortable, I can always find a way to check out. And for me, that's kind of, it, it kind of seems, well, it definitely seemed insignificant at the time. But now looking back, like that bottle of NyQuil was really like kind of a gateway drug for me, as funny as that sounds. Moving forward, my junior year in high school was kind of when I realized that, that alcohol was going to play a significant part in my life. Farrah, let me ask and, you a quick question real quick. And I, I can ask yeah. this question because I was born in Utah. I moved to Colorado when I was 12. Are you, okay. are you Mormon? I am not. Okay. And I'm just going to say, you and I, we are very similar. And I grew up in Utah. I was non-Mormon. The drug of choice, your drug of choice, approval, goodness gracious, uh-huh. that's, that's my life in a nutshell. I was great yeah, at skateboarding. Man. I was in a band. And I was also captain of the football team. So it sounds like you went from baseball to band practice. You were skateboarder. And, and always just seeking approval from these different groups. Man, I, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like you and I are like two peas in a pod and, and I guess you've already kind of jumped into the podcast title, Your Elevator. Yeah, tell us, like, yeah, give us, just pick up where I interrupted you from and talk to us. Yeah, no, when I'm, you I'm glad to you did, man. That's, that's one of my favorite things about being in recovery is we can sit down or even get on the phone with another alcoholic and literally within, like, five to ten minutes of the conversation, we're probably both, or at least one of us is nodding our heads saying, like, yes, yes, I relate. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't really happen anywhere else in the world that, that I've experienced. But yeah, kind of back to the elevator topic, started drinking junior year of high school and it started just every weekend. And I never really thought that I would let drugs or alcohol become a problem. For me, I, I've always had this massive ego until I got into recovery and did some work to, to put that thing to bed. Always just kind of saw that lifestyle as just kind of scummy and no class. And I always prided myself on, on those things. But before I knew it, those things were gone and I found myself entirely addicted to drugs and alcohol. So junior year started drinking and also playing baseball. I had an injury and broke my ankle. And at the time, it was just it was like this, this perfect storm. At the time, I was struggling with, again, some things like depression and anxiety, and I didn't know what was wrong with me. I just felt so different from everybody else. And drinking was, was helping that, as anybody listening knows, that, that, that alcohol can solve that problem for a while. It's definitely not permanent. Mm-hmm. At least it wasn't for me and in my story, but back to the injury, I, I broke my ankle playing baseball and was prescribed painkillers. And I remember taking those painkillers. So it was, a, it was a doubleheader game on a Saturday, and I went back to the field to support the rest of the game and took two of those pills. And I remember seeing on the bottle, so I take one to two every four to six hours for pain. And so I took two and was feeling awesome. And I, I will never forget the thought that came to my head was, well, I, I have seen doctors about depression. I've been drinking alcohol, and alcohol helps, but it leaves a hangover, and you can smell it on my breath. And I literally thought to myself, and this is so funny now, but I literally thought to myself, why don't doctors prescribe opiates for depression? Because, <laughs> this, I mean, being 17 years old, like, question. that makes sense. And for me, it was just like, this is it. Like, I'm okay now. And something I heard in recovery, I don't remember if it was in a 12-step meeting or just in a conversation I was having with somebody, but the way it was described, um, and these aren't my words, but they're perfect. It was, for me, it was like every single sharp, jagged edge inside of my soul was wrapped in like a warm silk cloth. And I had just 
like the book says, I, I had arrived. This mm-hmm. was it. Like my, my problems were gone. And so at 17 years old, after drinking pretty consistently for, you know, about a year or so now, I had also found opiates to add to my repertoire of what I could do to make me feel okay. And again, it, it made so much sense at the time. And moving forward through that, I mean, it really only got worse from there. Alcohol was always consistent in my story, but obviously drugs played a pretty significant role as well. It's kind of like alcohol was my true love along with opiates, but I have a, I had a ton of different um, affairs, we'll call them. So moving forward from junior year to senior year, drugs and alcohol made more sense to me than anything else did. So I stopped playing baseball and jumped further into the music world because, again, music permitted drinking. And it just went downhill from there. I was 18 years old playing in a band with guys that were older, and we played a lot of different shows that were in bars or venues that were also bars. And I discovered that it was very easy for me to get in as long as I had some music gear in my hands. You know, if I walked in with a road case and a guitar case and some cables, there were no questions asked. So I was getting into clubs at 18 years old, playing rock shows and drinking AMFs and Long Island ICs and taking pills. And at that point, marijuana was pretty, pretty consistent in my life as well. So I graduate high school by a thread and move out of my parents' house. And that's when it really started to get pretty gnarly. I started drinking every day. Pills were pretty consistent. Marijuana was pretty consistent. I somehow managed, this is insane to me, but I somehow managed to get an emergency medical technician certification, like, wow, blazed out of my mind on substances. I, yeah, that was amends that I had to make up. Like I never used that certification. (laughs) So yeah, I don't know. Just life got, life got pretty dark for those years. So I got sober at 22, but went to my first detox at almost 21 and used and drank the day I got out. I was in detox for eight days. And by the time I left, I learned within an hour, I was, I was drunk again. And I started kind of going to 12 step meetings here and there drunk or high through most of them sitting in the back corner, knowing that what I was doing wasn't working, but still not ready to accept any other sort of lifestyle because it's all I'd known for so long. And it just got to a point where I literally couldn't exist like that anymore. I woke up one morning and realized that I was either going to die or what I was doing was going to land me in jail where I wouldn't be able to use. The timing was kind of weird. My my family had actually planned an intervention. It was going to happen. But the day before I, I asked for help and I had just had enough. And so this time I, I set out with the most purest gold intentions, even though I had had those before in the past. But the difference this time was I actually accepted spiritual help. And I detoxed again. I went to an inpatient treatment facility, checked out of that, went to a, a three-month sober living aftercare program, and jumped right into 12-step recovery. And life got pretty amazing within the net, within the first six to eight months of of being in recovery and doing all the things that 12 steps recovery suggests. I got a sponsor that I admired and respected and kind of feared in a way. And I shut the hell up and I listened to him for the first time in my life. I put my own ego aside and realized that I don't have the answers to what I need to do. 12 step recovery worked for me the first year. It's working for me the fifth year. Um, I'm going to stick with it, but within a year of, being sober, I I was just work I was working a desk job and doing sales and I absolutely hated it. And I had this epiphany that was like, All right, man, like you went through a lot of shit and you kinda have a story to tell. 
And there are a lot of people who are suffering. And at the time, I was really, really, really into into 12-step recovery. I mean, I still am. But at the time, I just had this burning itch to quit my job and start playing music again. So I did it. And it's been working. And so with that nonprofit organization I mentioned earlier, we've worked with over 300 schools the last four years, which is so fun. So I started, I, I spent my first year sobriety birthday on tour. And it's funny because I used to lie and tell people that like, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I couldn't talk. I was on, I was on the road playing music, like just lying to, to fit in, right? Like looking for approval yeah. or yeah, we just recorded an album. Like it was, it's so cool, like lying. But now all those, I do all of those things and I, and I don't have to lie to fit in. And I honestly don't even tell most people about it because I'm just proud of myself. And that's all that really matters to me these days to that, you know, that drug of choice of seeking approval, it's been lifted. That obsession has been removed for me. And so uh, I spent my first sobriety day on the road with these guys and it was so cool. And fast forward a year after that, at two years sober, that's when I started Party Sober Clothing. I mean, that's kind of my story and that's kind of what led me up to, to starting Party Sober and Party Sober yeah. Clothing is awesome. And I read on the about page, it's, it's it's about glamorizing sobriety, which I totally agree, man. This whole stigma of being an alcoholic or addiction is crushing recovery, that movement. But glamorizing Absolutely. sobriety, and, and I'm a proponent of it. Sober life is awesome, and sober life is sexy. Tell me about Party Sober Clothing. How did that start, and where's it going? Yeah, man. It's- we just turned three years old in August, and started it really with just the intention of like, maybe selling a couple shirts, hopefully sell like three or four shirts a month. And we just I put up a really primitive website and started some social media accounts for it. And it was just, it was just fun. And that's why we started it was the, the mission has always been and will always be to glamorize and glorify a sober lifestyle in a way that's in opposition to what mainstream media and mainstream culture supports that lifestyle being like. Because having been there, you know, you and I and all of the listeners know that there's really nothing glamorous about the things that we did for our addictions. So that's always been the mission of Party Sober, to just show that it's not only okay to live a sober lifestyle, but it's actually kind of incredible. And it opens up so many doors for you. And so the thing with Party Sober is obviously, as everybody here knows, I'm in recovery. I never really sought out to have Party Sober be a quote-unquote recovery brand, because I always, I wanted to reach out to more people than just people who are in recovery. I wanted to do a little bit of prevention work and reach out to the younger crowd of teenagers. And with our branding that is, you know, cool and relevant and hip, and we've been doing things every year, like um, we've been a vendor on the band's Warped Tour. Um, One of our items was picked up by Hot Topic nationwide. So things like that that are showing like, yeah, this is okay. It's it's actually kind of cool. And so, yeah, fast forward from, from three years ago when I, put up that really shitty website. I mean, we've got a full staff that's running the whole thing. And I've got an incredible business partner. His name's Wainer Schmidt. Um, and he's, he's really pushing the company to, I don't know, do things that I never ever really thought would be possible with just this little clothing line that I started. And the funny thing about it is I never really wanted to own a clothing line, but clothing was the best medium for this message that I have so much passion about something tangible that you can literally wear and just represent in a way that is so bold. And that's what I love about, you know, my fellow alcoholics is like, we're all pretty bold. Like we make big moves and do big things. And to have a a party sober community, like it's so cool. I hear that somebody in Phoenix, Arizona was 
traveling and ran into somebody in Florida from New York and they're both wearing party sober. It's just like, boom, instant connection. And wow. it's things like that, that that's, that's super cool for, for me to see that the, the growth of this brand is starting to offer to the world. Farrell, for a lack of better words, but I mean, the, the word I think of to describe you best off is, is freaking rock star, man. I can't think of a cooler 28 year old dude in the entire world, man. You're basically living everybody's dream, but you're doing Thank it you. sober. Seriously. Congratulations. You yeah. said earlier, you're proud of yourself, man. You should be super proud of yourself. That's so awesome. And where, where do you see the party sober clothing thing going in the next two, three, five years? So, Goals right now, after we, I mean, we've really kind of hit the clothing line goals. I mean, we're shipping orders worldwide, which is so cool. But um, as an alcoholic, I'm never content, right? Which I think in, in, <laughs> in a mission like this, I think that's okay. And um, so now moving forward, the website's partysoberclothing.com. And I want to get it to be maybe even just in the future partysober.com and have it be a hub for like all cool things, recovery, sobriety, drug-free. So what we've been doing is we've kind of been teaming up with other, um, well, not other, but with treatment centers, with other clothing lines, with resources. I just, I want party sober to be a, a safe place that people can come and understand that this lifestyle is amazing. And, you know, maybe pick up a, a couple really cool clothing items, but mainly just continue this mission of getting rid of the stigma and, glamorizing this lifestyle in a, in a huge way. So um, we'll probably be doing the Vans Warped Tour again this summer, which is so fun to do because we do not fit in on Warped Tour. Um, <laughs> Go imagine. Yeah. It's awesome. So, but, I mean, it's funny, like, growing up, always fitting in everywhere that I went, like, now it's kind of the opposite. But I I just, I love it. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. Damn, Farrell. You don't need my approval, but you freaking got it, dude. Just keep <laughs> keep you. doing what you're doing, man. Um, quick question about oh, – hang on one second. I'm right, finished writing something down. Um, hang on one second. Oh, yeah. Farrell, talk to me about the stigma of addictions, stigma of being an alcoholic. Growing up in Salt Lake City, I know there's a very large Mormon population, and a lot of them don't drink at all. Now, is that something where the stigma is 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 increased or over dramatic because of that because of the Mormon religion? Tell me, yeah, what's yeah, it like a, that being sober in Mormon whole, land? Honestly, man, that's probably a whole other podcast episode because there's it's so interesting, and I'm not I don't mean to generalize the entire state of Utah, but um, statistically speaking, Utah has one of the highest, if not the highest, prescription drug abuse problems in the country, and I think part of that has to has to do with I'm trying to be delicate with this, but it has to do with um with the predominant religion here, you know, not approving drinking. But if it comes in an orange bottle, it's okay. So with their uh, name on it and prescribed by a doctor. Exactly, I, I got you hundred exactly. percent there. I pieced out of that state at twelve years old before Good for you. Yeah, I mean, just it wasn't my choice. My parents got a job in a different location. And yeah, I had my first drink in Colorado where I moved to 
But I, it was yeah. a different world, man. I, where I moved from Utah to Colorado, it, it was like it was just black and white, two different yeah. places. The kids in Colorado were already drinking. I was in Sandy, which is South Utah. I was like one of two non-Mormon kids in the entire school. You, even, you couldn't even imagine drinking in, in, in the age, at that age of 12. So, man, that's right. crazy. But I think you're right yeah. with, with the addiction. With the prescriptions, it's probably like, you know what? It's not in a beer can, but it's in a bottle. This is probably okay, according to the Latter-day Saints religion. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's just, it's, it's human to kind of want to feel differently in a way. Some of us just take it further than others. So I don't know. I mean, obviously for me, it was never a problem scoring drugs or alcohol in this, in this city. I, I was, I, had the ability to become a full-blown alcoholic, but before I was 21 in this state. So it's not as sheltered as a lot of people think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, Salt Lake, honestly, it, I love it here. It'll always be home. I get to travel a lot, but Salt Lake will always be home. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. The the stigma here is, is definitely a lot different. There's, there's a lot more judgment, a lot less understanding. But with Party Sober, we it was, it's kind of funny. We thought that party sober would do really well in Utah because of the religion here. And a lot of them do represent a sober lifestyle, but we, I mean, we honestly ship more orders like up to Canada than we do to our neighbors here in Utah. Really? It's interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Farrell, talk to me a little bit about your recovery portfolio and how you maintain. So, and how you maintain sobriety. You mentioned 12 steps. Is that AA? Is that another 12 step program? What does your recovery portfolio consist of these days to help you stay sober? So it's really just a range of 12 step meetings. It doesn't matter for me because like I said, like I, if I'm in an AA meeting, I identify as an alcoholic. If I'm in an NA meeting, I identify as an addict. And for me, it's really it's just all the same for me. I do understand the singleness of purpose and, and what that represents and what that stands for. But for me, if you are struggling with any addiction and are working to overcome it, like you're on my team. So um, I guess what my portfolio would look like to answer that directly is 12 step recovery. Um, and there are, I will say this, there are a lot of things in, in 12 step that I don't necessarily agree with. It's a very, very old model. Um, a lot of people would argue that it's outdated and I, I agree with that, but what I've been able to do is just take what works for me. And when I hit a meeting, I offer my own experience, strength and hope and hope that that can help somebody else. I mean, it's just, it's my favorite thing about meetings is that you can step into a room with a ton of strangers and feel at home. Like that's cool. I don't know if I would be able to find that anywhere else. Um, so working 12 steps, um, being of service is, is huge for me. And I've always, I've always kind of prided myself on being able to keep party sober and my own recovery separate. Um, because what I do for party sober, you know, the outreach that we do when we donate stuff to halfway houses or sober livings or, or whatever, like that's not my own service. That's just a, that's a charitable contribution from a business. It's the way that I look at it. And so for me to, to stay on top of my own recovery, getting outside of myself daily is absolutely necessary. And anytime I find myself having a, a pity party or, you know, feeling mad or angry or whatever, if I can do something for somebody else, that usually sets me straight. And I learned that in 12-step recovery. 
Wow. Love it, love it, love it. Farrell, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be sure. great. All right, let's Are do it. Are you ready? Let's do it. Number one, Farrell, what was your worst memory from drinking? Um, I woke up, I was, let's see, I was 18 years old. I woke up having ran my car into a, all right, get ready for this, a Suburban that hit a Tahoe that went into somebody's house that hit their boat. Oh, wow. um, that's the, that's the worst, darkest for me. Yeah, it wasn't pretty. Wow, I hope I hope uh, all parties had insurance on that one. Yep, yep, yeah. we did. Wow. Okay. Number two, what's your plan in sobriety, Farrell, moving forward? Shoot, man, that's that's tough. I really subscribe to the idea of one day at a time. Still, mm-hmm. but um, the idea that if you string enough one days at a time together, you can create something pretty damn cool um, is very attractive to me. So. Um, moving forward, I hope that party sober stays alive and continues to thrive in the way that it has been the last couple of years. So I want to just keep that growing. Nice. Number three, Farrell, what's your favorite resource in recovery? This could be a book. This could be an app, a 12 step program. Hell, it could even be party sober clothing. As, as egotistic as that sounds, man, party sober has, has really given me a lot of purpose, but, um, beyond that, um, I'm going to say, I've I've taken a lot out of Eckhart Tolle, who's an author. If you haven't heard of him, um, the book called The Power of Now is pretty incredible. I'd say that's probably one of my favorite resources that's helped me with my recovery, even though it's not a really a, a recovery-based book. The Power of Now. I'm going to try to get that in the show notes section of the, this podcast episode. You can go cool. to recoveryelevator.com and find Farrell's interview and find the link to the power of now last question or second to last question in the rapid fire around Farrell in regards to sobriety. What's the best advice you've ever received? Man, that's a really good question. Um, honestly, all of the cliches that come in 12 step recovery, um, one day at a time, keep it simple, keep coming back. All those things that I hated hearing the first couple of months I went to meetings. Yeah, um, me too. All that, all that garbage that actually turned out to be kind of a treasure. <laughs> Love it. Last question. Farrell, what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are in recovery or are thinking about quitting drinking? I would say that obviously no one person speaks for recovery. So if there's anything I have said in this podcast has turned you off that's just my own perception my own story so meet as many people as you can and take what you can from as many different people as possible yeah you said it earlier Farrell. take what you want and leave the rest last up Farrell, give us the recovery elevator give the recovery elevator community your customized you might be an alcoholic if line (laughs) all right so you might be an alcoholic if you can focus better with one eye closed Oh, I love it. I've driven many miles with just one eye open and a hand on the other one. Unfortunately, I've got to admit that. I love it. Farrell, how can we get in touch with you? How can we find Party Sober Clothing? Uh, we're all over social media. At Party Sober Clothing on Instagram is probably our most hopping place. Um, beyond that, any questions for me personally, um, my email is just my first name, F-E-R-R-I-L, at PartySoberClothing.com. Love it. Farrell, thank you so much for taking the time today. 
We have reached the You Might Be an Alcoholic If segment of the podcast. But before we do that, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.sobernation.com. Once again, that's sobernation.com. You might be an alcoholic if, if you've got some of these you want to contribute, please submit them to info at recoveryelevator.com in the subject line, you might be an alcoholic if. They can be funny, they can be real. I'm a firm believer that humor needs to be involved in recovery. And it's with these smiles and sounds of laughter that make our days just a little bit better. Wow, that sounded lame, but you get the point. This first one is from Gavin. You might be an alcoholic if, when you're at your in-laws for Christmas, you make an excuse to walk home, you pull the curtain shut so the place looks occupied, turn the lights on, and then you drink as much as you can in a short period of time, and then quickly returning back to the holiday party. Thank you, Gavin. That one's from across the pond. And this next one's from Don. You might be an alcoholic if at CVS you get a four-pack of plastic bottles of wine. Plastic, of course, because it's less noisy. You drink two of them before going to your parents' house. You stop at Starbucks to get coffee to mask the smell. And then you drink normally with your parents after that. This next one's from Ashley. You might be an alcoholic if your nickname is actually Half Pint. (laughs) That is awesome. This next one's from Megan. You might be an alcoholic if you sneak away during dinner at your parents' house to take swigs of Fireball while they think you're drinking normally because you had one drink before dinner and only one during. This last one is from Paul. Actually, Paul Churchill. This is mine, and it's hard to say. But after the holidays, this is one that went down, I think, in 2006, 7, or 8 at the same house that I've had Thanksgiving dinner at for about 10 years in a row. You might be an alcoholic if at Thanksgiving dinner you just sneak away to make out with your date only finding yourself to be making out on a little kid's fire engine bed when your parents turn the lights on. Yep, that was me. It's funny, the kid whose bed that I made out with with my date is now like 13, and I don't think he's ever going to forget that. Every year I walk in, his voice gets lower and lower, and he's like, hey, Paul, uh, do you, do you remember that one time when, when, when you and that girl were, were making out in my bed upstairs and my, and my bed was a fire engine, and the bed was only like four and a half feet long? And you guys didn't even fit in a bed. And, and then when your parents went up there and turned on the lights, they, they, they caught you guys. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I remember that. I, I, I was there, actually. That, that was me who they turned the lights on. Some things need to be forgotten in recovery, but some things don't. I'm okay with that one being a funny anecdote that gets repeated about 44 times every Thanksgiving. Reason 862 why I don't drink anymore. Side note, there is a sale at Bed Bath & Beyond on fire engine beds. Little small for me, but my standard poodle, Ben, he would look really good sleeping in a fire engine bed. Photo possibly to come if coupon is still good. Thank you, Megan, for compiling that list of you might be an alcoholic if. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, there will be a meetup in Seattle on February 27, 2016. There will be more information about this on the website recoveryelevator.com. If you do think you can make it, please RSVP or let me know just so we can plan accordingly. What are we going to be doing at this meetup? We're going to be meeting other alcoholics. This is a recovery network group. That's what we're going to be doing. We're not going to be going over any steps because it's not a program. 
Recovery Elevator is a community. It's a community that builds your network, the recovery network group. And what has been vital in my recovery is building my portfolio of other alcoholics that I can call when I'm in a bind, but more importantly, that I can call and just go hang out with. Because this disease is communal. What I mean by that is within five minutes of hanging out with another alcoholic that you've never met before, you're going to reach friend level status 50 because you guys have both gone through a lot of the same stuff and you get it. You don't got to go through the normal required conversation like, hey, do you like Guns N' Roses? No, no, no. I like Maroon 5. Hey, have you been to Hawaii? No, no, I've never been. Do you like Greek food? No, I like Chinese food. Hey, are you an alcoholic? Yeah, I am an alcoholic. Boom, right there. You guys got two things in common. I'm thinking the meetup, it's only going to last a couple hours. But it's not going to be in the bottom of a church or inside a community building where no one's going to know we're there. It might be in a Fuddruckers, in a party room, where if the person in the booth behind me hears that I'm an alcoholic, I don't care. So when you do pull up to this meetup, walk in with your head held high. There's nothing to be ashamed about. And it's going to be a really good time. Recovery Elevator, you know how we close this thing out. You took the elevator down, you got to take the stairs back up. You can do it.